Testing and seasoning out, right? Lord, we thank you. We pray that the blood of Jesus be over this place. Let your Holy Spirit just brood over. Lord, I pray that you would give us good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives right now. Anoint our eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray give us spiritual vision and hearing. That we have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. Come speak through me your words of life to be sown out as good as living seeds of truth sown into that good fertile soil. Lord, that you would speak through me everything you would have spoken under a mighty anointing that the Holy Spirit will lock everyone in, captivate us to give you our best and full attention. And Lord, let your Spirit water those seeds of truth that take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. We thank you, Lord, for it. Let everything be accomplished. Your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We thank you for it, Lord. So as we go into this about the tabernacle and the priesthood, I just want you to give me your best ear, but really understand where I'm coming from tonight. This is the type of sermon that can be misunderstood if it isn't really... I'm going to do my best to preach it right, but people have got to have eyes to see and ears to hear. There's got to be a getting away from traditions of men. Okay, One of the things that the Gentile Western church as a whole is going to have to do is be willing to be different. Okay. Because the pattern that is there in a lot of churches is not a, is not a pattern that's bringing the glory and it's not a biblical thing. And so we're going to have to be willing to go against status quo and be different to uh, be everything that God wants us to be. And so I feel like that's part of the message here as I go through the tabernacle in the priesthood series is that God is showing us the pattern of getting into his glory and we have to be willing to be different. Now anytime you're different, you're going to catch some flack about just the fact that you're different, period. So if a church is different, the enemy is going to try to level things against it. And it's the same spirit behind that that's behind racism because racism says if you're different than me, then something's wrong with you. And that's not true. God loves diversity. He doesn't want us to all be the same. Every church that's moving with God is still going to be different. They're going to have their own sound. They're going to have their own personality, and God wants it to be that way. So I'm just saying all that to say that as I speak this tonight, it's probably going to be some things you've never heard, and it's going to be some things that are probably going to go against tradition, but I can back it up with Scripture, and it's biblical. And one of the things I want to say is this. I'm going to talk about the cleansing tonight a lot but also i want to say that god i'm going to preach on blessings but i wanted to have in just a moment chris and sarah share their testimony about what happened the other day but whenever blessings are spoken blessings are so powerful when there's a curse on a person that curse will try to hold them back and hinder them and every time they go forward it seems like something tries to reach out and pull them back they, can, they seem like they can never break out into success and fruitfulness and everything God has for them because there's a curse there trying to hold them back. But a blessing will propel you into what God has for you. A blessing will make weak areas become strong. A blessing will help bring breakthrough where there's been stubborn situations. And blessings are so powerful to bring such change. I'm not going to preach on them tonight, but I want you, those that are listening, I want you to begin to think about and write out some kind of a small little blessing tailor-made for you as an individual. 
You know the areas of weakness that you have dealt with in your life that need change. Let me say it again. You know the areas in your life that need change. You know the areas that generationally have tried to attack you. You know areas where there's been past weaknesses in your life. You know areas where um, you feel like you haven't been able to get over that hurdle. And I want you to write all those down. Is there things that have come down the family line that you notice in your life that are not good? Have you struggled with lust? Have you struggled with anger? Have you have you noticed there's attacks against your finances, attacks against relationships in your life, health? Um, whatever it is, I want you to jot down these notes and I want you to write out a blessing or at least give bullet points of things. And I want to speak a blessing over each person over the next two, three, four weeks a blessing that you wrote out that is tailor-made for you, and I'm going to believe God for major breakthroughs. Because something's going on as we're doing this series. I'm telling you, there's such a deep consecration that God is doing in all of us that we've never known. I mean, a level of cleansing that is so deep and so profound that it's going down into the deepest recesses of your spirit and your soul and your body and purifying you, which is causing health to come into alignment which is causing, you know, what the enemy once had to fall off and propelling you, moving you into a new place. And in this time is the perfect time now for blessings to be invoked. But sometimes it's the blessing that will simply just overturn and remove any type of curse or hindrance and will empower you to come above it. I don't want to teach on blessings. I want Chris and Sarah to come here real quick. Y'all could just stand right here in front of me. And I want Chris to share first and then Sarah just tell what happened there you go. hello uh, okay so I didn't prepare a test on this so I'm just going to do it the best I remember but basically I was struggling with a lot of different areas and um, God had warned me about some upcoming tests and trials he like revealed to me in some dreams some of the things that I struggle with that I didn't even know was there and uh, he revealed those uh, out of love because he, you know he wanted me to pray about it but as time went on, I kept uh, struggling with those things even more and more, and it was just getting worse and worse. Um, it was a handful of areas, but the two main ones was like pride and religion, and it's just kind of been my area of weakness. And I mean, I, have, I would just have these plenty of days where I would just get into these like forums and like debating people, and, and sometimes uh, it was like the motive of the heart that was wrong that was behind it because I wasn't doing anything in a spirit of love, is what I'm trying to say when I would go in and debate people such as I have a family member who's not saved and trying to talk about Jesus, but doing it in a way which is condescending, rude, not loving, and it's just like getting frustrated with people, and it's just religion. And I'd been, uh, there was other areas too, but like religion and pride were just the two things I was really struggling with, and um, I was really starting to feel hopeless and, uh, and at times very depressed, like I'm not going to pass these tests and trials, this or that. And um, then I had the idea to type up a blessing for myself that Pastor Scott would pray over me. And it addressed all these different areas. Uh, I, you know, I tailor-made it for me, and it hit every single point in area that I was struggling with. And, uh, and afterwards, you know, I presented it to Sarah. I was like, I don't know, maybe this is a dumb idea. But, you know, we read it over. I was like, actually, it turned out pretty good uh, when we read it. And I realized that was the Lord's doing because he... Uh, I think the Lord really helped me to type it up in just the way which really hit all the areas. And uh, I tell you what, when I brought it to Pastor Scott, even though I've prayed over all these areas myself, and I've been 
like every day, oh, please help me, God, please help me, God. Like when he prayed it, it I could really feel the anointing on it. And um, I mean, ever since that uh, last week, I've literally just felt such a, an incredible breakthrough. Like I haven't really struggled with any of those areas at all. And I didn't even really think about it today until we started talking. I was like, yeah, actually, I really haven't struggled with any of that. There was one night where I did start to get a little bit in that mindset. And uh, I just said this to myself. I said, no, Lord, that anointing that was released when Pastor prayed for me is still in me. It abides in me. And as soon as I said that, like it just, I felt that same anointing he that came through the blessing just rise up and it, like it clicked out. My mind was right back to where it needed to be. And anyway, so pastor has an awesome authority and an anointing and these blessings, please. It's, it, it really uh, impacted me so much and I'm really grateful to the Lord. So Sarah can share. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Come on this way. Share about your experience because she was under the power while Chris was getting blessed. But what was happening to you when, you, when he was getting blessed? Yeah, like he said, I was under the power over there, and I guess they were standing somewhere right there. And uh, I, I was, I was feeling the anointing from earlier when he had prayed for me still, but then I heard him just—I couldn't really even hear what they were saying. I'd read the blessing, so I knew what it said, and um, all I heard was "I bless you, muffle, muffle." But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I could feel every time I, he said, I bless you too, dot, dot, dot. I just felt a wave of heat come over me and electricity and this awesome, like, power. Like, really, really strong. And it was really surprising because I wasn't expecting it. But, yeah, that's what happened. All right, there you go. All right, I wanted them to share that because I wanted to strengthen your faith about this, what God's doing. There's, there's a power in blessings that will change things when nothing else seems to change it. Okay, There's just something about blessings. And again, that's another sermon for another day. But I want you to write something out for yourself. And when we speak that blessing, I'm going to believe that those words are going to go into your spirit and soul area. And God's going to give you breakthroughs and strengthen you and empower you to rise above things that have once held you back. Okay? All right. So just over the next couple of weeks, bring it to me at church, and I'll be happy to speak it over you. And it's okay if you forget something and want to get blessed twice. That's fine. All right. So I know how it is. Somebody will come to me and go, you know, I should have wrote this down. All right. I'm going to talk about the laver tonight and the priestly garments. All right. When you came into the tabernacle, remember the, it's the size of, about the size of a football field. This huge white fence was around it five cubits high which was about seven feet this was a tall fence and the whole point of the fence was to keep the world out and god was in there and the world was outside and i believe that's a message for us today the lord we may be in the world but we're not of the world okay and the church should not be a place of worldliness the world's out there we should be with god here living righteously holy and different than the world but I talked about real quick the, the those seven foot wooden beams. There were sixty of them around it. Six is the number of sinful man. Ten is the number of completion. So what God is saying, the complete revelation for sinful man to be redeemed is revealed in the tabernacle. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear. And those wooden beams, wood speaks of humanity, and so it's a picture and type of us as Christians. We're spiritual stones that are making up a temple. But in this case, in the tabernacle, it's like. 
the wood is humanity. So the message is that where we once used to be messed up in sin, now God has made us righteous and so we can stand upright before him. And that bronze was at the base that held it up. And the bronze is judgment against sin. And God is saying that your sin was judged at Calvary. And now you're able to stand upright, righteous before me. There was a clothing of over that fence that was white linen. And God is saying, just like you're that wooden beam, you're right before me. Now you're clothed in righteousness. And not only that, but there were silver cords that, that went down vert, you know, sideways, horizontally, but also went down to the ground and literally braced that beam in place so that when the winds came of adversity, it would still be held up. And the Lord is saying that you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that even when winds of adversity come, you're not going to fall down, but you're going to be held up because you're redeemed. Silver means redemption. If you have eyes to see everything in the tabernacle through the eyes of the Spirit, it is so powerful. So you look at this thing, say you're on a mountain looking down, and you see the children of Israel camped around the tabernacle, again, about the size of a football field, and you would see this, this part, there was an outer court, and you would see the priests sacrificing animals. You'd see the laver. But there was also this tent, and it was covered. The very top part of it was just badger skin, so it was plain. And see, you look out, the world looks at the church and says it just seems so plain, so drab. What is it that's attractive? Why do they go? What's the point? It's just To them, it's just a bunch of rules. But see, you have to come in. You have to come in through Jesus to see the beauty and the glory. Because once you got inside that tabernacle, it, it was beautiful. There was gold all in it. The fragrance of the incense. The, you know, what was there was beautiful. But on the outside, it looked drab. It was kind of like when the Bible, Jesus told the parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a man that found a treasure in a field. And he sold everything he had for that little treasure in a field. And how many knows when you get a field... A field has got torn down barbed wire fences. It's got, you know, burrs in it. It's got thorns in it. It's got rocks in places you don't want. You know, it's, it's got old Coke cans and cigarette butts in it. And you've got to go through and clean it up. But that man found a treasure in that field, and he was willing to sell everything he had to get that field. But the field didn't look attractive, but the treasure in it was. And that's kind of like the tabernacle. The tabernacle on the outside really didn't look all that attractive. But once you come in... Into God's presence, it's amazing. So, the fence was around it. The fence speaks of the white righteousness at the the left hand, the well, the eastern side rather. Because when you look at most pictures, it's from left to right. The eastern side of it was the gate that you could come in. There was only one way in. Why did God put the gate on the east? Because most of those religions of the people of the east, at least part of that religion, would worship the sun. And God was saying to the people of Israel, if you want to come into me, you're going to have to turn your back to the sun and deny every other God and you then come to me. You see what I'm saying? They had to turn their back on other gods. That's why God put it at the east. And not only that, the prophecy is that Jesus will come from the east. So all the way around this thing, there was a seven foot fence. You could not get in except through that gate. Jesus is that gate into the kingdom. There's no other way. There's not multiple doors. There's one gate. It had four colors, which represent the four gospels. I'm not going to go back into it. 
You come in through the gospel, and the first thing is that bronze altar, and the bronze altar speaks of the cross, where blood would be shed. We've got to preach the blood. And I get irritated with people that are now trying to deny the blood. And they say, well, it's gory. There's blood all through the Bible. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, there's blood all the way through that. And the message is that we have to come through the blood of the Lamb. That's it. There's no other way that God's going to accept it. You know, just like Cain tried to bring his fruits and vegetables. God's not going to accept your fruits and vegetables of religion. Okay? He's not going to accept what you want to bring him on your terms and your timing. No. God says you'll come through the blood. And that's why Abel's was accepted because the blood was shed. And so when you come through, you see that bronze altar where animals would be killed and they'd be cut into five pieces, put on that altar. Their blood was sprinkled everywhere. You look at that, you saw wood, you saw bronze, and you saw blood everywhere. And it was Calvary, the power of the cross. Then, because of that blood, you could move past that to the laver. And that's mainly what I'm going to preach on today is the, the laver. And I'm going to talk about the priestly garments, okay? This is a picture of the laver there, but I don't believe it's a very good picture. The laver was made of pure bronze and there was no dimensions to it. And just about everything in the tabernacle had dimensions. God was very specific. He said about the bronze altar... You're going to make it three cubits high, which is about five feet. And you're going to make it five cubits wide, which is about seven feet or so. And it had to be specific. But with the laver, there was no dimensions. You know why? Because the laver, one of the revelations about the laver is, it's the word of God. And you can have as much of the word as you want. That's the message. And the way that the labor was built, it was pure bronze. It was beaten and hammered out. God, the Spirit of God came upon Bezalel, however you say his name. And he created all these, these beautiful, you know, the tapestry and all the, the furniture and everything. And the hand of God was upon him to do this. Did you know that Moses saw this when he had his encounter with God? God showed him heavenly things. See, the tabernacle and the furniture and all that is in heaven. And it, that revelation came to Moses and then Moses had it built on the earth. But this is something that's a revelation from heaven. That's why like in the book of Revelation, it talks about the sea of glass. That's the labor. The reason why it looked like a sea of glass is because of the peace of heaven. The water was just still. And when water's perfectly still, it looks like glass when you look at it, doesn't it? But anyway, the labor was made... Because when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God allowed them to plunder Egypt. Let me tell you something about the Lord. God is a God of justice. And whenever those people were slaves in Egypt, and they worked like they did, by the sweat of their brow, they were beat and treated like they were all those years. God said to Israel, and I'm just paraphrasing this, okay? It's sitting in the scriptures, but this bear, it bears out the pattern. God was saying, you're not going to work for nothing. When you come out of Egypt, you were once a slave and you worked like you did for them all those years. I'm going to repay you for everything you ever did. And when they came out of Egypt, God put it in the hearts of the Egyptians that as Israel was leaving, they were just throwing stuff at them. Get out of here. Take all that you want from me. Here's all my goods and belongings and gold and take this. Just get out of here. And the children of Israel plundered Egypt when they came out. They came out very wealthy. Everything that they needed for the tabernacle was given to them by the Egyptians. And the women that were the Israeli women as they were leaving, 
they were given the the mirrors of that time and what they were were these i guess they kind of look in our our mind you know like a ping pong paddle or something but like this and it was pure copper bronze and you would just polish it and you could see your reflection in it and so the women were given these looking glasses and when they came out of egypt with all these looking glasses these mirrors of egypt and moses said tell the people we need goods for the tabernacle we're going to make a tabernacle we need goods we need gold we need silver we need bronze we need different you know linen and and materials we need olive oil we need a lot of different things we need frankincense we need myrrh we need this stuff okay bring it and the children of israel just came and brought their offerings to the lord and the women all brought their looking glasses and put them down and that's what the bible says made the labor and so bezliel have you say his name he came and he took all those looking glasses, melted down, beat it into this huge uh, laver. And I promise you that laver is big because whenever it talked about it in the Bible, I was reading one translation, it was used for water immersion. So it had to be bigger than this little bowl for them to dunk people in it, okay? All right, so what the laver represents, the laver was the last, you went to the bronze altar, then you went to the laver. From the laver, you went into the tent. See, the outer court is like your flesh. The outer court is lit up by natural sunlight. That's why I keep making statements like you have to have eyes to see. Not everybody has eyes to see. When Jesus was on the earth and he said, To him that has ears to hear. See, the people he were talking to, maybe some of them were deaf. Okay, and he healed them, but he wasn't talking about physical deafness. He was talking about the fact that they could not hear by the Spirit what he was really saying. See, he would speak the parables and it would just... Even the disciples didn't get it. And Jesus had to many times privately explain it. Why? Because they did not have ears to hear. We have to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is revealing. And the outer court is lit up by natural sunlight. And that's where most of the body of Christ dwells. They sit around talking about their salvation experience. They sit around talking about their water baptism. And that's it. They don't ever move past that into the realm of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Tongues. Revelation from God where the lampstand is. They're not going in there. They're staying out here talking about the blood, which the blood is wonderful, but we've got to get beyond these things. Amen? The outer court is 30-fold. The holy place is 60-fold. The holy of holies is 100-fold. Once we learn to get past the flesh and past even the soul and in the spirit. All right. This is deep. That's why I'm just taking a little at a time. The laver... It has a strong connection with the golden altar of incense. And the reason why is because the priest had to be cleansed to have pure worship and prayer. Also yearly, the golden altar of incense had blood applied. There had to be washing. Listen, many times even our worship needs to be cleansed. We need a fresh washing in the blood and, and just a holiness. And the priest before... Before the priest could go in and sit at the table of the Lord, which represents communion, he had to wash his hands and feet. Before he could go in and burn incense and worship, he had to wash in the laver. 
So the laver is the, the cleansing of the washing of the water of the word. And I'll add this. This is my opinion. Also the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is described as a river that washes. Did you know every revelation of the Holy Spirit, except that of a dove, but rain, the river, um, the fire, and the wind, all of it also has a connotation there of cleansing. Because wind will blow out the fowl and bring in, you see what I'm saying? It has a cleansing of the air. Rain will come down and wash clean. The river will wash and the fire will burn out all the impurities. So I believe the, la- the message of the labor is once you come to the cross, now you submit yourself and surrender yourself to the washing of the water of the word and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So the pattern there, you know, that's why I take communion and all that at the beginning of service. We have a chance. Really, what you're doing is you're visiting the bronze altar and the laver right there because you're examining yourself, you're praying, and you're getting washed in the blood and washed in the water of the word. So you're taking a moment to pray and there's a cleansing, and then we can come into the glory. All right? So the pattern is there. All right, so let me dive into this. I got two main points. I want to just talk about water baptism and the cleansing there. And I really want to talk about the priestly garments. And in that, I want to talk about how God cleanses and consecrates us, okay? This is a little bit different and controversial, but I've never really cared much about that. Do you? So let's just preach the word, amen? Some people like it, some people don't. Who cares? The Lord will sort it all out one day. All right, so... The power of water baptism. Let me say something right up front that I am not. I'm not really sure. People like the Apostle Paul, looking down today at America and different places here in the West where the gospel is being preached, that they would really truly recognize the gospel that's being preached today. Because I'm not sure that's the same gospel they preached by and large. Just to be honest. The Apostle Paul understood that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let me, let me just start this real quick by saying that, let me, let me explain how the gospel is. Number one, you come through the blood, you're washed in the blood when you're born again. You're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Your sins are pardoned. The Spirit of God comes to live in you. You're born again. You're new, you're different, you're clean, okay? But there's more to that word in the Bible that says salvation. It's all through the New Testament. Look it up. That word salvation is the Greek word sozo, and there's more to that word than just being born again. The word sozo in the Greek means, yes, to be saved, but it also means to be healed, delivered, made whole, to be preserved, and to be protected. All of that's wrapped up in that word. So that's bigger than just a born-again experience, wouldn't you agree? It seems to, to explain the fullness of what Jesus did on the cross. That yes, he paid for your sins to be forgiven, but he paid for your healing and your deliverance and your protection and your preservation and all of that. And let me tell you, this is the word of God. This is the truth. Now, I hope you hear me. That there are people, the Bible says, that will abandon the faith. And that means that they walked with God and now they've turned their back on him. They've rejected him and walked away from God. Also, there are people, the Bible says, that will fall away. That means they got deceived, 
they started thinking that they could, for example, live a lifestyle of uh, practicing witchcraft or being a practicing homosexual or that they could ha live in this adulterous affair or whatever they're doing and they could still make heaven. They got deceived and they fell away. That can happen. So this weird doctrine that teaches that you come in, you say some little prayer, and then from that point, you're just good. I mean, you go out, live however you want to, live like the devil, live in sin. No, God understands. No, God doesn't understand. Okay? Well, it'll all be okay, and it's like this eternally secure thing just because you said a prayer. I'm just telling you. I hope you hear me that that is not the Bible. Okay? The book of Revelation bears out that there's people's names that can be blotted out. Okay? Jesus taught us in Matthew 24... He that endures till the end will be saved. So there's a beginning of being born again. But the Bible says to those of us that are being saved, it's the power of God being saved. There's a working out your salvation before God with fear and trembling. That you're yielding yourself. You're laying yourself down on the altar and letting the fire of God burn out all these impurities. Every day you're saying, Lord, let me die to the flesh and live for you. There's a true Christianity that is a daily walk with God. A relationship. Embracing the Word of God. Letting that... You know, people say, well, you, you look at your neighbor down the street, you look at this person at work, and you compare yourself with them. You say, well, I'm doing good. No, friend, you don't ever compare yourself with other people. That, that, that would be the mark of a fool, okay? You compare yourself with Jesus, and when you look at Him, you go, oh. You know, that's, that's, what, that's the washing of the laver, because you look in the laver, and it's the Word of God. You're looking in the Word of God. You're looking at Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, okay? You're looking at Jesus, and you're going, oh, Lord, let me wash my hands real good. Lord, let me wash my feet off, because the works of my hands are not where they need to be. My daily walk isn't where it needs to be. Lord, that your Spirit would purify me, Lord. Lord, that your Word would wash me. I want to be holy before you. That is true Christianity. It's not some little half-hearted prayer and then going out living the way you want to, friend. Those people are Matthew 7, 21 people that will say to the Lord, many will say to the Lord on that day, Judgment Day, Lord, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we, we released healing in your name, and Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. They called him Lord, and they operated in the miraculous. But he never really knew them, and they lived in sin. Amen? All right, that's the Word of God. Some people love, hate that, whatever. That's the Word. And I want to live for the Lord. I'm not going to stand before Him one day as a preacher that didn't tell people the truth. All right, so the waters of baptism. Now, let me say this for the religious out there that like to criticize. I do not believe that water baptism is a requirement to go to heaven. I don't. And the main reason I believe that is because it's bared out in Scripture. It's the blood, okay? And when Jesus was dying on the cross, he told the thief there, he said, you'll be with me today in paradise. Jesus did not run real fast, pull him down, water baptize him, put him back. It, you know. So we know that it was the, the thief there, his faith was in the cross. His faith was in what Jesus was dying for his sin. I'm telling you, it was somehow there. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. So it's the blood that gets you in. I don't believe that you have to be water baptized to get into heaven. So why is it that, that in the scriptures it says those that repent and are water baptized will be saved because the word saved is sozoed. Okay? And let me explain it like this. It's not so much 
that it's getting you into heaven, but it's altering the way your life is going to be here. See, most people, when they accept Jesus Christ, aren't going to enter eternity right there. Most of us have a few years in front of us where we want our life to be filled with God's glory and we want all the benefits of the cross. But I'm telling you to enter into all the benefits of the cross, water baptism plays into that. So we say, well, we want to be preserved, sozoed. We want to live the sozoed life of, of divine health and, and, and prosperity and protection and being made whole and all that. Well, repent and be baptized. You'll be sozoed. Baptism has something to do with that life there that you're wanting. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? It's not the born again, but it's the quality of your life here on earth is going to be affected. John Kilpatrick said those, I'm going to explain it the best I can. John Kilpatrick said those in the revival, there was hundreds of thousands of people being saved at the Brownsville revival. The mercy seat was being sung. And I'm, the reason I'm preaching a lot with the Brownsville because I feel like there's a connection with that and what I'm preaching and what's coming in America. Okay, But anyway... They would come down to the bronze altar and they were getting saved. And then they were being water baptized and they were, you know, they were visiting the laver. And Pastor Kilpatrick said there was a marked difference in people that were water baptized and those that weren't. He said those that were water baptized seemed to be able to be sustained in their Christian walk, while others that didn't get water baptized seemed to struggle and some of them fall away. Did you get that? Also, Dick Rubin says this. He gave the pattern of how Jesus had submitted himself to water baptism and then the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God was not a bird, but John the Baptist said he saw the Spirit come on Jesus like a dove, meaning, I have doves so I know, but they, they're gentle in the way they move, okay? Even if I pick up one of my doves, they're, they're just not violent creatures, okay? I mean, doves are very gentle. And so the Holy Spirit settled on Jesus very gently like a dove would, coming on him and clothing him with power. It happened at water baptism. And Dick Rubin said this. He said he's noticed throughout his ministry that people that have had maybe some kind of a challenge get baptized in the Holy Spirit, that whenever you water baptize them, that that seems to be a time where people can be baptized in the Holy Spirit very powerfully. So, there's something more to this water baptism than what I think a lot of Christians understand in, in the Western world. Because in the tabernacle time, it was not uncommon. When people, even in Jesus' time, when people would go to the temple, there was these vats of water where people would, you know, be, they would water baptize themselves basically to be ceremonially cleansed to come into God's presence. And they understood under the law of Moses that part of the ceremonial cleansing included washing with water. And there's something about, I tell people that maybe they've been saved and baptized in water and then they've backslid and got into some stuff and come back. I always tell them you need to get water baptized because there's a defilement that came in your life. So come again to the bronze altar and get washed in the blood. Come again to the laver, okay? And then you'll be able to go into the glory without any problems. But there's a power in water baptism then I've preached this so many times. I know you guys know this, but 2 Corinthians 10 says that the children of Israel were baptized into Moses when they went through the Red Sea. So follow me in this. As they went through the Red Sea, they were water baptized. And as they got on the other side of that, the Red Sea closed behind them. And it separated them from Egypt. It separated them from the past. It separated them from the world. 
Remember me saying that that fence around the tabernacle separates you from what's outside? Water baptism seems to close behind you and separate you from your past and separate you from the world. There's just a power about it to do that. Can you see that in the scriptures? And not only that, but Pharaoh sent his little army and they come riding through there on their little chariots trying to chase the children of Israel. And God calls, caused the wheels to come off their chariot. Here's the power of water baptism. The wheels came off their chariots. They were confused and then they drowned. Water baptism seems to, to cause the wheels to come off the chariots of the enemy, cause them to get confused, and cause them to drown and die and be broken. See, some people, they haven't gone through the waters of baptism the way they should, and they wonder, why is it that my past is still chasing me? When you get water baptized, it may drown those things. Amen? Did you know in water baptism, I can tell you stories one guy was telling me, and I knew this guy, and he was a very credible source about this. He was telling me he grew up in church, and while he was young, he said he was sitting in church, and there was people getting water baptized up there in the front. And he said, man, it, it scared him because he saw this guy getting the water baptismal, and he saw, he said, I promise you, I was there. It was like a Sunday morning, and he, he was a young man with a clear mind, and he said there was like a green fog that came into the bottom of that baptismal. And that guy got baptized and came out and that fog just came. It's like it came out of him and left. He said, man, he said, I saw that man get delivered to something. And I'm going to tell you something else. I saw this, this testimony of, of this young man that was in a, a band, a secular band. He was also very much a drug addict, very sexually active, and lived an evil life. And he was given his testimony and he said that he had given his life to Jesus, okay? And he had gone to get water baptized in this river. And this preacher, there was other people getting baptized. This preacher was going to baptize him. He said, while he was going to the river, he said he felt something coming up in his belly area and was moving around. And he was feeling nauseous. He said it was weird. And he said he got down there and he was getting water baptized. And he, you know, hand over the nose, he's holding himself. And the guy puts him under the water and he came up and he said he felt that thing come out of him. He was delivered. See, there's something about these demonic things being broken off people's lives in water baptism. Not all of it. I love the preachers that preach about the power of the blood because I believe in the power of the blood, but not everything always happens at your born-again experience. It just isn't always that simple. They make it sound like it is, but that may have happened to them. That's a lot of the, the issue. It happened to them that way, but it's not always the case with everybody. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. I've heard t testimonies of people being supernaturally healed in water baptism. Um, Basil, when he came to preach, either for me or one of my friends, he told me, he said there was a man that has such a bad heart condition. He had come to the meeting, and they, it happened to be that night they were doing water baptism. So they had some tub brought in the sanctuary, and he said that they had this plastic all around it, and people were coming in, and Basil said he would just pray for them, and they would fall out under the power in the water, and then there was people there to help them back up. So they were doing baptisms. This guy has such a bad heart. His heart was so weak that it was not able to pump blood to his extremities the way it needed to. And so his arms and his hands and his legs were black. Okay, It was that bad. And this man was just there, and he was, he was struggling so bad. But he wanted to get water baptized. He gave his life to Jesus. Amen. So Basil goes up. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Spirit, whatever he does, I baptize you. The guy falls out. They bring him back up. He goes and sits down. Did you know God healed that man? In the baptismal pool, something happened to him. And while he went and sat down, Basil said that his arms started regaining color, his legs regained color, and he was healed. And it was connected to that labor. I've heard testimonies um, where people have had radical things happen to them. Listen, I remember in the Brownsville Revival, you should look this up. Maybe I'm sure it's on YouTube for people that never have seen this in Revival. But they had to have, and I joke around calling them the, the baptismal bouncers, but they had to have people in the pool that would, because they would water baptize people, and these people would just fall out under the power and were just in the water. So they're picking them up, and they have these big old husky guys, you know, that probably did get saved that were a bouncer. Pick them up, you know, and just throw them over like a sack of potatoes and carry them up out of there and bring other people in. But, but there was something so powerful in that baptismal pool that would overwhelm people. I'm telling you, there is a washing in this. Oh, you see what I'm saying? And so my point is this. If you were just going to accept Jesus Christ and die right there, that'd be one thing. But we've got years in front of us, friend. And I want to accept Jesus and be washed in the blood. But I want to be able to walk in divine health and victory and freedom and, and freedom from my past. And go into everything Jesus has for me. And part of that is the labor. You can't get around it. And what's bothered me is, is that a lot of churches say, well, you know. They teach, some, some cults and stuff teach you have to be water baptized to be saved. And so what they do is they get this knee-jerk reaction to it. They want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And they just ignore water baptism pretty much altogether. You cannot neglect these things. Okay, There's a power in it. And I'm going to give you something else. I, I don't fully understand this, but I want you to just think about this. This is where it might get a little controversial. But let me tell you that there's nowhere in the Bible that says that you, only, you can only be baptized one time. It's not anywhere. There's nothing even remotely like that in the Bible. Do you know that? So you need to, you need to take things to the Scripture. Because people, I hear this all the time because I pray with people for deliverance all over the world. They contact me, talk to me. Is it okay that I get water baptized again? Because, you know, I was water baptized when I was young, but... You know, I've gotten in all this stuff. I'm like, yes, it's, there's nowhere in the Bible that says you cannot, cannot get water baptized more than once. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say anything like that. The labor is without dimension. So, I mean, if you need to get baptized more than once, it's fine, scripturally speaking, okay? And there's nowhere in the Bible that says it has to be some apostle or some prophet or some fancy priest doing it, okay? I believe Christians can just water baptize people, amen? That's just the way that denominations, they make it, all these weird rules, where you have to be ordained, not not even you you know like your license. You have to be ordained before you can administer communion, water baptize people. That's ridiculous, friend. Look, listen in the Bible. Let's not hinder what God wants to do. Well, we've got to get some special ordained person to come in and, and all this stuff every time we want to take communion or water baptize somebody. Let's not hinder the move of God. Let's just understand the scriptures show us that all of us are priests unto the Lord. Yeah. Amen? Amen? And let me give you something else. When you know the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and they were water baptized, I don't know if you've ever realized this or not, but yes, I understand that they all died in the wilderness. Some of their kids probably went through the Red Sea with them, though. I don't know how old all of you know. But the older ones died in the wilderness because they rebelled against God. Okay? 
But have you ever thought about the fact that the kids that were alive that crossed the Red Sea also crossed the Jordan? And not only that, that Joshua and Caleb crossed the Red Sea and also crossed the Jordan. So let me give you this. They were baptized twice. They were baptized once when they left Egypt, but when they went into the, actually possessed the promised land and really move into the destiny, so to speak, there was another baptism. I'm just throwing that out there. I think that the, I'm just going to throw this out there and you just do with it whatever, but I think that this has been neglected. I think that we need to understand more about what God is saying about this. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you look at his life, a Jewish man, he understood a Nazarite vow that I'm not preaching on, but he understood these different things. And, and there was a time in his life when he went to Jerusalem and he shaved his head like a Nazarite vow, and, and he went through the purification rituals, which included that you dunked yourself in water. To show that he was still a Jew and he was still honoring. Do you see what I'm saying? Read it. It's in your Bible. So he went through this, this purification rituals there in Jerusalem. And I'm just saying there's something about it that I don't think people, I think that we need to understand more. Because what happened is, is whenever um, Jerusalem was, was destroyed by Titus, and, and Vespasian back in 70 AD and the Jews were scattered and, and Paul had taken the gospel to Rome, what happened is, is that the Jewish roots got cut off. And then this Gentile church emerged that became the Roman Catholic Church and entered into the Dark Ages, okay? And God, ever since then, you can see with, with Luther, back in what, 15, 17 time frames where Luther came in and restored the gospel, and then you see all these great revivals, God has been taking a, a Western Gentile church, and he's been trying to restore back all the things that Satan stole. In the Dark Ages, it was bad. I mean, even the gospel was not preached, okay? So God's trying to get us back to these Jewish roots that we draw strength from as Christians. So what about Jesus whenever he wrapped a towel around him and he knelt down and he washed the disciples' feet? What about that? What about the laver there? What was he doing? He says, oh, you're clean because the word I spoke to you. Jesus is the word made flesh. He spoke the word. They were, they were clean. But he still said, I need to wash your feet. That's the laver. And what did he tell Peter? He said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. That's, that's a serious warning there. You see what I'm saying? We've got to let the Lord, through His Word and by His Spirit, wash our hands, which is the works of our hands, and wash our feet, our daily walk, or we'll have no real part in Him. And Peter said, no, Lord, it's, it's, you don't need to wash my feet. It's like a false humility there. You don't need to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if you don't let me do it, you'll have no part in, it, part in me. And then Peter humbled himself and said, oh, Lord, then, then all of me, whatever needs to be washed. That's the heart we need to have. Second Thessalonians 2.13 talks about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He is so powerful. As you yield to Him, I'm telling you, He will, he will burn things out of you. You know, there was a time back in, in years ago when, see, some of you have never even heard this because you didn't grow up in Pentecost and others are young in the faith. There was a time years ago back in Pentecost, and some of you will remember this, that they would always pray and preach, and you would hear the intercessors praying about, Lord, that you would save them, 
that you would sanctify them and that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit. You don't hear that anymore. And I, I remember this old preacher was telling me one time, he, he moved very powerfully in deliverance, this incredible anointing on him. And his older man had an encounter with the Lord. He was. He, let me tell the story real quick. He said he was about 60, I think maybe 70. And he said that he felt that his life was moving on to where he didn't know how many more years he had. He had been pastoring for about 50 years. Okay. And he told the Lord, he said, Lord, he went off in this old woodshed that he had. He lived out in the woods. I've been to his house. Wonderful man of God. He had this old woodshed and he went in the woodshed and he said, Lord, I'm 70 years old. I've been pastoring for 50 years. And he said, I don't know how many more years I have in front of me. But he said, I want to surrender my life to you in a new way. And I want you to be able to do with my life whatever you want to do. But I want you to do something very powerful through me in the last years that I have. And I just want to yield myself to you for something new. And he said the power of God hit him. He went out. I believe if I remember the story about he went out under the power hard. And as he was there, the Lord spoke to him and said, Son, I'm coming quickly. And he said, I'm going to deliver my people before I come. And he told him to begin to go forth and understand the deliverance ministry. And that's where that whole thing came from. But he was telling me, he said, many years ago, back in Pentecostal churches, he said, you know, we would, we would stay. People would get saved. They would come in and get saved. And he said they would stay there in the altar. And they would pray. And people would gather around them that were powerful men and women of God. And they would stay there and pray with them. And he said sometimes they would stay there maybe for hours. And he said what was happening was, was all that junk was coming out of their life. They were praying through. They stayed there until they got things broke off them. And he said when they left, they were different. And then they would come back and they, and they persisted. And there was a time where they would come early and they'd be walking the aisles praying in tongues. You know, and preparing things in the church. But see, a lot of churches now have gotten away from that sort of thing. As you know, one, one credible man of God said that um, in one mainline Pentecostal denomination, okay, probably the most well-known, he said in that denomination there's about 14% of people that are actually baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. 14%. Listen, friend, that is a horrible statistic, and I can't believe that to be true. 14%. But see, they understood something by the Holy Ghost. They, they may not have, have known how to eloquent, eloquently put it. You know, they may not have understood the depth of the tabernacle and all that I'm teaching you. I don't know. But they knew something by the Holy Ghost that if they would stay there and pray through, that they could get a breakthrough and move into not only being or saved, but they could also be sanctified and filled with the Spirit. All right, let me get off that. But you guys understand now a little bit more about the power of water baptism? That's why I'm big on that. I tell people, listen, when they get saved, make sure and get them baptized. And every time I do deliverances with people, I encourage people to get baptized. I don't care if they've been baptized before. What difference is it? Let's do it again. And some people listen and some people don't. All right. In Leviticus chapter 5, I'm going to go real quick through this part. There's some examples of a guilt offering. Remember me telling you the sin offering and then the guilt offering? The sin offering was for your sin, 
but the guilt offering had to do with maybe the repercussions of your sin. Remember that? But the guilt offering also had to do with this. As a Christian, there's still things that can defile you and affect you. Okay? Let me give you some things. The Bible says in there, there's a, there's a clear example of this. Number one, that if you are a witness to something and you refuse to testify that you were guilty before God, if you witness something and you refuse to testify about it, that you were guilty before God. There's people that they've witnessed some things going on in their local church, that there's somebody trying to split the church. There's some gossip going on and they've witnessed it. If they keep silent, they don't go tell the pastor, they're guilty. Amen? And I believe that to be in the natural too. If you've witnessed a crime and you're going to let some innocent person go to jail because you don't want to testify, you're guilty before God. Also, rash vows. This is a big one, friend. Listen to me. This is a big one. Do not ever make a vow to God that you're not going to keep. Number one, many times people will vow and say, I'll never do this again, Lord. Well, then they do it again. And the problem is, number one, whatever they did was a sin. But then also they broke a vow to God. So that's a sin. So they've, now they've got two sins to deal with. When you make a vow to God and you break a vow, it's serious. And God said in the book of Ecclesiastes, he takes no pleasure in fools that make a vow and then break it. God says you're a fool if you make a vow and then break it. It's better to not ever make a vow than to make some vow and break it. Jesus said, don't swear by heaven and earth. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't go around doing all of that. But if for some reason you feel you need to make some vow to God, you keep that vow. Let me give you an example. Modern day Nazarites. You know, Lou Engel and these different guys talk about this Nazarite vow. Very powerful. Very powerful. I'm not going to teach on it or anything, but, but if you take that vow to God, that's awesome. But you better keep that thing as long as you said you would. You said, Lord, for six months, I'm a da-da-da-da. And then five months into it, you break it. That's a sin. And you may find yourself struggling and wondering what's the deal because you broke a vow. What about people that stood up before all those witnesses there, before the preacher, before their spouse, before God, and took marriage vows to a year later go and break the very things that they vowed they would do? I'll be faithful to you and you only, and then they go have an affair. You see what I'm saying? These vows are serious, friend. If you ever make any type of a vow, you better make sure and fulfill it because it's serious business. Another thing is touching dead bodies. In the Old Testament, it make you unclean to touch. You know what that means for us today in Christianity? It means things that God has delivered you from. It is now a dead body in your past. If you go back and touch that dead body, it's serious. Are you hearing me? See, Samson was a Nazarite. But Samson, bless his heart, I love him, I hope he's in heaven and all of that, but he was a very foolish man. He was born a Nazarite. God set him apart as a Nazarite. He had those seven locks of hair. And a Nazarite wasn't supposed to cut their hair. That's the whole thing about the hair. People say, what's the deal about the hair? It wasn't that he had some fancy hairdo. It's that he was not supposed to cut it because he was a Nazarite from birth. He was not supposed to drink wine or have the fruit of the vine like raisins. And he was not supposed to touch dead bodies. And he knew this. Now listen about Samson. Samson knew better. 
It wasn't ignorance. He was taught this by his mom and dad who had the angel come down from the time he was a little bitty boy, okay? And so when he got older, he just didn't care about his Nazareth vow. And you read about him going to where the lion, the dead lion carcass was, had the honey in it. What did he do? He touched the dead lion. You read about him, you know, drinking the wine or whatever and breaking that part of it. And then ultimately after he did those two, you also read about him letting Delilah cut his hair. And that was the three things he wasn't supposed to do. And he did all three. And once his hair was cut, that was it. The bow was broken. That's why he didn't have any more strength. Listen, you've got to be careful. Because like Samson, what took Samson down? Sexual sin, mainly. And that wasn't the only thing, but that was the main thing. He was playing with stuff. The Bible said strange flesh. Why couldn't he just be content with a Jewish wife? But he was always looking at the Philistine women. He had an eye... For strange flesh. He had something in him that could not be content with something virtuous. He had to have something else. You see what I'm saying? And that lulled him spiritually and then he lost his anointing. Lost his destiny. Spiritually speaking, in the natural for him, but he became blind. And he became in so much bondage that now he was just pushing this mill in a dungeon. He was in a spiritual prison. I'm speaking hypothetically. A spiritual prison. He was totally in bondage. He was blind and lost the anointing. Be careful with touching dead bodies. I'm talking about spiritually that you don't go back to the things God delivered you from. It's like the dog returning to its vomit. Jesus said once something comes out of you, you better... You remember when Jesus healed the man? And the man came and found him later? You healed me. You know, and Jesus said, listen... Go and sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Let me say that again. Go and sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Jesus said when something comes out of a man, these evil things leave somebody, they'll try to come back seven times worse. You go touching dead bodies that God's delivered you from, you may find yourself seven times worse off than what you were. All right, the next thing is unforgiveness. The, the very word trespass, it's a guilt offering or a trespass offering, trespass. Remember Jesus said in the, in the New Testament, forgive us of our trespasses, we forgive others. There's something about unforgiveness that keeps a Christian in bondage. Your sins are not forgiven. There's a defilement there. There's a door for the enemy. Be careful with unforgiveness. Jesus told the parable that there was a man, that a, a king forgave him this huge debt. And then he goes out and finds somebody owed him a couple dollars or whatever, grabs him by the throat, picks him up, and is demanding that he give him that couple dollars. The king found out, I just forgave this man for thousands and thousands of dollars, and he's going to choke this guy for a couple dollars. He got mad. He said, bring him back in here. He said, you're going to be thrown in prison, and you're going to be a slave, and you're going to be in there until your debt's fully paid. Now, here's the spiritual aspect to that. The Bible says he was put in prison and given over to the tormentors. Spiritually speaking, when people get in unforgiveness, they come into a spiritual prison and they're given over to the torment of demonic spirits until they really repent of it. All right, then the last thing is the curse of Loshan Hara. In the Hebrew, the Jewish people teach this. There's a curse. And it's Deuteronomy 27, 24, about smiting your neighbor in secret. 
we all know that if you go up to your neighbor and you smite your neighbor, they're going to know it's you, okay? You don't believe me? No, don't do it. If you go... <laughs> but how do you smite your neighbor in secret? Gossip. Gossip. Being a talebearer. Leviticus 19.16 says, do, it specifically says, do not be a little talebearer that goes up and down the land spreading rumors. But in Deuteronomy 27, this was serious. This was, this was a curse. It said, curse be the one that smites your neighbor in secret. It's a curse. And when people get into this gossip and slander business, it seems to bring a powerful curse on them. Gossip is that you're going around telling people somebody else's business and it's none of their business. Slander is that you're running people down behind their back. The gossip and slander is what makes up this curse of Loshan Hara. Loshan Hara is a Hebrew phrase that means evil speaking. It's a curse. And the devil finds these, you know, long-tongued people in churches that can't get control of it. One preacher said, the lady came up and said, would you pray for my tongue? He said, man, there's not an altar big enough to lay that thing on. We have to go through and anoint that big, long tongue of yours, you know. He said, because she just said this big mouth always causes a problem. There are certain people that because of their mouth is so full. Remember, James says your tongue can be lit by the fires of hell. There's some people, they may be a Christian, but their tongue is lit by the fire of hell itself. And they're a big mouth gossip, a slanderer. And they go through churches tearing them up. I remember one preacher was saying that his dad, he grew up in church. His dad was a preacher. Now he's preaching. And he said that his dad was seeking God because he took this church. And it seemed like the church never could get a breakthrough. He looked at the history of it, never could get a breakthrough. And he was trying to figure out, he went on a fast. And God spoke to him on the fast, said there was two women in that church, that every time that church started to do something significant for God, the devil would use them to start gossiping and tearing up that church. He'd come out of the fast, shut the door, come in, he was going to, he got up at the pulpit, the people were there, and he was preaching everything, and, and he said, at the end of it, he said, I went on a fast, and he said, I sought God as to why this church had never been able to break into everything that God had for it. And he told me, that there were two women in this church, every time this church started to move forward, that you would be used of the devil, start gossiping and slandering and tearing up this church and just, and just people leaving, people fighting, and it would kill the move of God every time. And he, and he pointed at the clock on the wall and said, it's a couple minutes till noon. He said, you've got that long to confess. And if you don't, I'm going to call you out by name. And one woman jumped up and said, it's me, and she's the other one. <laughs> I don't have time to teach on church discipline, but listen, if, if preachers and leaders would do what the Bible says and purge the yeast out from among and get rid of those type of people, the church would be better off. All right, let me move quickly into this, the cleansing. Listen, the priests of the Old Testament had the ability and the power to cleanse. I'm going to move quick with this, okay? There was a scripture in Leviticus 14, especially verse, or the chapter 14, that they would take a leper to be cleansed. And once he was uh, supposedly free, they, they would take him. And they had this ceremony where they would take two birds. They would kill one bird, shed its blood, and then they would take wood, which represents the cross, scarlet yarn, which represents the blood, and they would wash with water, which represents water baptism. And they would dip that bird 
the live bird in the blood of the dead bird, and then they would take and they would release an open field, which speaks of death, resurrection. So it shows the cross, the power of the cross to bring cleansing to people spiritually, because leprosy represents an incurable disease, but it, in the, in the nat, in, that's in the natural and the spiritual, it represents sin, because sin is an incurable disease before God, spiritually speaking, and the only remedy is the cross. You see what I'm saying? So, the leper cleansing represents us coming to the cross, but I want you to see something. The priest, when they would cleanse somebody spiritually, it also was in direct connection with them being physically healed as well. And Jesus made this remarkable statement when he drove out a demon, and the people there said, he's driving out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus said, I don't got no demon. Okay, and I'm not driving out demons by demons. He said, I drive them out by the Spirit of God. And he said this. He said, well then, who do your people drive them out by? They'll be your judges. But listen, he understood. See, under Levitical law, the priest would cleanse people. And while they're spiritually cleansed, many times there would be a physical healing or a deliverance of a demon that would take place. That's what Jesus was referring to. He said, then who do your people drive them out then? So there was deliverances going on through the priesthood. Do you see what I'm saying? And Jesus was referencing that to those Pharisees. He said, you're saying I drive them out by a demon. Then who do your people drive them out by? See, we've got to get people spiritually cleansed. Not all sickness is the result of unrepentant sin, but let me give you a couple quick things. Sometimes, the Bible says that if we say we're without sin, we just deceive ourselves. So just be humble. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes maybe there is some kind of a sin or something there that we're not discerning. Y'all hear me, please. There's a sin maybe there that we're not discerning. Number two, there may be unforgiveness there that we don't realize is there. Number three, there might be some generational curse or something that's there that needs to be broken. Or, number four, there may be the sin of another person that has so deeply wounded another. You see what I'm saying? The sin of that person has wounded this person so deeply emotionally that it has now affected their health. It may be even opened the door for a demonic torment. But nonetheless, those different areas I just mentioned, it can be cleansed and the person can be free in Jesus Christ. But we need to discern why it's there. We need to be humble. If somebody came to me and we prayed and I didn't get an instant breakthrough and it was a preacher and we were praying together and I didn't get a complete breakthrough and he told me, he said, you know, Pastor Scott, maybe your faith needs to come up. I would say, brother, you may be right. You know, I may have some faith, but maybe I need some more faith. I'm humble about it. You know, I don't feel like I got some great faith and, oh, don't tell me I need more faith. I'll get all mad and been out of shape. Some people are like this. Like, I'm, I'm, I, that doesn't bother me. I may need more faith. But sometimes it's not the faith. Sometimes it, there's a door. And it may be sin in the person. It may be the sin of another that's wounded them. I don't have time to go into all this, but sometimes people have been so wounded emotionally that it has affected their health or some generational curse, whatever. But there's provision for this at the cross. Amen? So the job of the priest is to cleanse the person. And when they're cleansed, many times healing and deliverance come forth. All right? 
The second thing was, there was an interesting passage in Leviticus 14 about cleansing houses. I've preached on this, so I'm just going to touch on it real quick. But there can be demonic defilement, pollution, and demons and different things in a house. And interesting that my wife and I just saw some special on television where they were talking about it. It was really interesting. And these people that were talking about it, some of these preachers, they knew, they know what they're talking about. They said, well, how does stuff get into a home? And the preacher was saying, well, if previous owners of the home were in witchcraft in the occult, that could be one. He said if there was murder, violence, death, suicide, things, that could be another. And he was saying it depends on what they did there. I mean, if they did things that welcomed evil. And, he, and one preacher made a statement I loved. He said this. He said people want to play with things. He said they want to take evil out of this little box and play with it. And then when they're done playing with it, they want to put it back in its little box and think that it's just going to go away. He said it doesn't work that way. Once you open Pandora's box, so to speak, and you start playing with evil, he says it overtakes and just explodes in the person's life. And it goes farther than they want it to. And, and there was these different stories. It was, really, it was really neat hearing all these different stories. People that's played with stuff. This one woman grew up in Christianity, but yet she got really into divination using the divining rods, and it, they would lead her to different things. And, and she was totally tormented by demons. And they had come into her house. They were tormenting her. And she had to get you know, Christians or whatever to come in and pray over her and drive that stuff out. But there can be a pollution in a house. One of the houses they looked at, I'm just giving some, some stories, but one of the houses, there was a man who I would not consider just listening to him to be somebody that was spiritual at all, okay? He, he professed Christianity, but just listening to him, you could tell he wasn't a praying person. He was like, yeah, he said, man, I knew something was wrong after years of all this weirdness. And he said his family, and he was telling all these stories about the house would get cold chills in certain places. They would hear things. They would see things. They would smell things. And, and it was he knew something was off. So he calls in the people to come help him. He went to his preacher first, and let, just let this be a warning to anybody that's gone to ministry. He went to his preacher first who didn't know how to help him. So he had to go outside of his church to get help, okay? We need to learn about these things, amen? Don't be afraid of it. We have authority over it, amen? Yeah. So the guy came in, and they started trying to figure out how did this thing get in this house? And through researching it, they found out from people in the neighborhood that years ago, back when abortion was illegal, that that house would perform illegal abortions. And that's what was going on. Now listen, they somehow, through prayer, opened up a hole in the wall and went down in that hole. Listen to this. This was the Lord doing this because they prayed about it. Opened up this hole in the wall, and inside there was all these different belongings of different people in the house. Like, how did it get in the wall? But listen, they found a piece of paper in there, and when they opened it, um, it had some weird writing on it on the back it had a yeah okay anyway on the back it had this picture of the demon god Moloch now listen if you know anything about Moloch this is this was really weird because Moloch was the demon god that in the land of Canaan that people that worshiped the devil and stuff they would sacrifice their children to Moloch there was abortions in that house and it was a sacrificial thing to Moloch and probably the people involved for them to draw Moloch and put it in the wall and stuff, they're probably deeply involved in the occult, okay? Well, anyway, this person unearthed that, understood what was going on, said, all right, the previous owners, they obviously did abortions, and this was obviously a place that was in the occult. 
And so they went through and prayed over it and cleansed it and drove out those spirits and did what they were supposed to do. And you know what? That owner said since they did all that, he said things have been really peaceful. There haven't been any more problems. There can be something in houses. That's why when the children of Israel came into Canaan, God said, I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't plant. Okay? You're going to have wells you didn't dig, but you're also going to have houses you didn't build. So the question is, if you didn't build that house, then what's that house's history? And sometimes those Canaanites, all of them throughout the whole land, were deeply involved in different forms of, of, of darkness, okay? And they worshipped demons, and, and they would many times they didn't want the children of Israel who they heard. The children of Israel's God was so powerful that they leveled Egypt. This God leveled Egypt, the most powerful the nation in the world at that time, and this God leveled it. And then parted the Red Sea said, this God is powerful. We're scared of this God. And when they come and try to take our land, we don't want them to get all of our gold. And, and so, as a superstitious act, they would melt it down into these little demon gods that they'd pray to and worship, and they would embed it into their walls of their house or underneath their house for, it, for that to protect them. But also, they didn't want the Israelites to come in and find their gold. So whenever the children of Israel would move in these houses, chances are some of them would move into a house that had these demon gods. And so God said, if you moved into a house like that, I would put a spreading leprosy in that house. And so imagine waking up one night. You're this Hebrew guy. You know, you wake up, scratch your eyes, whatever. You wake up, you look on the wall, and there's all of a sudden green and red streaks on your wall. Honey, come look at this. There's some funky mildew going on here. I don't know what's going on. In the law of Moses, it says, listen, in the law of Moses, it says, when that happened, to go to the priest. So she, she wakes up and goes and looks at it and goes, honey, I heard about this. We need to go tell the priest about this. This may be something we need. And so they go tell the priest. You go to the priest, I don't know what happened. We just woke up in the middle of the night. I was minding my own business. All of a sudden, there's green and red streaks on the wall. The priest says, let's obey the law of Moses. So what he do is, he said, we'll take everything out of your house so it's not polluted by it. We're going to shut the house for seven days, see what happens. They come back, the green and red streaks were worse. So the next step was, the priest said, all right, cut out the stones that have this mildew. Get them all out of the house, take them out to a place for them, replaster the wall, scrape it down real good, get all that mildew out, and we'll see if it's something that's just a natural. Anyway, they would shut it up and they would watch. And if that didn't fix it, then basically Clorox bleach, so to speak, wasn't going to fix this. This was a spiritual thing. Okay? So the red and green streaks come back. It's worse. And the priest says, this is not something that your Clorox bleach is going to fix. This is not a natural problem. Okay? This is not a natural mildew in your house. So this is a spreading leprosy from the Lord because this house is unclean. We're going to have to tear this whole house down and start over. Okay. Let me tell you something. As priests, we need to learn how to clean houses spiritually. You need to know this. We need to learn how to help people. I'm tired of hearing about these glorified ghostbusters and look it up. They're out there. They go And they don't have a clue what they're doing. And they want to go in and do all this stuff. And they've got their little, they turn off the lights. And they, they got their little sensors and, and voice recorders and goofy stuff. They don't know what they're doing. And you know what they're doing? They're playing with stuff. 
that many of them are picking up demons because they're messing with stuff that they're not protected by the blood to be messing with. And I'm also tired of hearing about some of the cults out there doing it. Listen, born again, spirit-filled Christians should be able to do this. And we don't need to be hearing about some somebody coming to some preacher and the preacher's eyes get all big. I don't know what to do. And then they got to run to some someone else. Listen, we should know how to deal with this. What you do is you go through there, you find out why is it like this. Was there witchcraft before? What was the deal? Bill Schnebelin said he had a house there in Milwaukee somewhere. And that in that house, man, he practiced all this stuff. I mean, there was one room where he was a Catholic priest and they did mass all the time. There was another room where they, they did Wicca. There was another room where there was black magic. and I mean, he was into everything. And so every room of the house was dedicated to something. And, and he said that the man that bought the house from him was dead in just a very short time from cancer. He was totally fine before he moved in there. But he came in, got cancer, died real quick. And he said that now that he'd become a Christian, he understood, man, that house was horrible. You know, and somebody needed to clean it out spiritually. But you can't, that stuff's there, okay? I could give a lot of stories. But you go through, you find out what's the problem, and you get it under the blood. One woman came to me one time and said, Pastor Scott, look, here's the thing. She said, I have never in my life dealt at all with lesbianism ever. She said, I've never dealt with it. She said, um, I moved into this apartment, and she said, I, I go to sleep at night, and she said, something tries to come over me that is homosexual. And she said, I found out the previous tenants of this apartment were practicing lesbians. And she said, I've been tormented by this. And I said, you better clean that place spiritually. You better go through. What you do is, in a situation like that, you walk through that apartment and say, Lord, I confess this sin all the sexual perversions that's been here, homosexuality, all that, I put it under the blood right now. Go through, get you some communion, take communion, put that blood on the whatever, the doorpost, go through that place, put the blood. The blood will make it holy. You hearing me? Put the blood. Pray, get it under the blood, washed away in the blood, and then once that's done, they have to go. So then it's like, Lord, I break any curse or work of the devil off this apartment and any spirit that's been here, that's been lesbian or anything else, I bind you, get out of here, don't come back. I'm the tenant now. This is under the blood. This is holy ground. And this is going to be a place of the blood of Jesus and the glory of God. That's what you do. And then you clean that out. Go through then and anoint it, bless it, pray over it, and the glory will come. Amen? But is there things in your home, y'all need to remember this, that go back to witchcraft? Is there things in your home that are idols? Is there little statues of Buddha? Is there things in your home that are Freemasonry? Do you have Freemason aprons, books? Do you have paraphernalia that's connected somehow to the occult? Do you have things that go back to other religions? Because you need to think about that. People go all over the world, and they got to realize that these other cultures are not Christian cultures, and the gods they are worshiping is not the God of Abraham, man. And so they go there, and they're like, oh, this is a cute little trinket. Little do they know that there's something attached to that little trinket. They buy it, bring it back to their home, and something weird starts going on. Be careful what you bring in. And so go through, ask yourself, is there stuff in my home that is sexually perverted? Is there pornography, pornographic magazines? Is there things that are connected to bondages, drugs, tobacco, alcohol, things that are connected to bondages and addictions? Is there things in my home that could be a door for the enemy one woman told me, I knew her, her name was Annie in Sulphur Springs, y'all know this lady too, and she was telling me that her son got really into heavy metal, secular heavy metal back in the day, with the bands that were not of God, okay? 
and he had these posters on the wall and she told him she said, look son you need to take those posters down there's something creepy about it and he wouldn't listen to her and um he said he came one night she heard the most god-awful blood blood curdling scream from him and she said he was a man's man a tough guy but this he she said this was sheer terror and it scared her she jolted and went running in the room what's wrong and he she said he was balled up in his bed shaking and he said that he was looking at that poster this band and all of a sudden out of that poster came some black dog with red red eyes that jumped out of that thing on him and it scared him so bad he screamed like that okay listen you know people put these things up on the wall stuff that's causing lust stuff that's like idolatry in their life let's clean house get this junk out of our home amen but we have authority over these things and we have rulership and we don't need to be in fear about it either okay all right so once you clean a person once you clean a home the person's cleansed the home is cleansed that's a priestly ministry to cleanse the priest's job was to clean out these homes spiritually the priest's job was to cleanse the people and we need to understand the church needs to get back to the priestly ministry of understanding how to deeply consecrate people unto god listen the priests of the old testament were washed in the blood they were washed with the water they were anointed with oil and they were clothed with priestly garments we need to make sure as a church we understand how to get people washed in the blood to get washed in the waters of baptism anointed anointed and clothed with power from on high baptizing the holy ghost filled with the spirit we got to make sure that we understand how to function as priests how to function and move in the glory and under the gifts I don't think there's any way I'm going to get to the, the priestly garments. I'll come to this in a later message, okay? But let me just say that the priestly garments, I don't believe that they were optional. I'm not going to teach on it, but let me just read this parable to you, and I'm going to close with this, because I'll, I'll get to this in another sermon. I'm going to take my time, okay? But Jesus spoke this parable in Matthew 22, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. How many knows there's a wedding banquet being prepared for Jesus? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. He sent his servants. Who are the servants of God? Me and you. All right. To go tell those who have been invited to the banquet to come, but they refused to come. Who was it that refused to come? The Jews of that time. Then he sent some more of his servants and said, Tell those who have been invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fattened cattle. I have butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But the Jewish people of that time didn't want to hear it. Amen? They just didn't. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Who did that? That was the people of the day of the early church. All the twelve apostles... You know, Judas was replaced. All of them died a martyr's death. So the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What happened to Israel, to Jerusalem in 70 AD? Okay. But they, and then it says, then he said to his servants, who's his servants? The Christian. He said, 
The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone that you find. So what are we doing now? We're going all over the world to the highways and byways, to the prostitutes, to the crackheads, to you know those that are in witchcraft everywhere. We're going and saying, just accept Jesus Christ. Come into the kingdom. Okay, We're calling them in. The servants went to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed that there was a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes, wedding garments. Well, that's interesting. Let's just park there. I'm closing, but let's just park there for a moment. What in the world is wedding clothes? And you need to think about this because this is, this is a parable Jesus taught. So obviously, wedding clothes is a big deal to Jesus, a big deal to God. Because Jesus came in, the king, Jesus, came in and saw there was a man that somehow snuck into the banquet that didn't have on wedding clothes. He was not properly dressed for the occasion. And so Jesus said, bind him hand and foot, throw him out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he said, for many are invited, but few are chosen. So what in the world is wedding garment? The only thing that they can be is the priestly garments. There's nothing else they can be. Okay? What the priestly garments is, is the white, remember the white layer? In that the robe of righteousness, the garments of salvation. Number two, the blue layer, which is the clothing of power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And number three was the gold layer of the ephod, which is the glory. So the wedding garments are this. For me and you to get into this marriage supper of the Lamb and to be ready... We're going to have to be clothed in righteousness, clothed in power, and clothed in the glory. Many are invited. There's, this, goes, this is out for everybody. But few will be chosen. Are oh, you see what I'm saying? Listen, this is a call out to all the body of Christ to come into the deeper things of God. You know how many times you know, preachers get up on television day after day talking about being filled with the Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit? You know? All the time, and, and people constantly reject, I don't want that tongue business, a bunch of weirdos, a bunch of holy rolling stuff. I don't want any of that in my house. Okay, friend, but listen, you have no idea that you're cutting yourself off from so many things from God, and you're going to miss out on some things if you're not careful. The wedding banquet is there. The marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. It will be those that are a bride that has made themselves ready. The bridegroom's coming like a thief in the night. Jesus said, how can there not be two appearings when first off Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief in the night. A thief in the night is a secretive thing to take away the bride. And if you understand the Jewish culture, the bridegroom would come at night, take away the woman that he was pledged to be married, take her away. Listen, the bridegroom's coming at night. It's a secretive thing to catch away his bride. That's the marriage supper. A bride that's made herself ready. But then there's another appearing when all eyes will see him as it is from the east to the west like lightning where he's going to come on a white horse and he's going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split. He's going to you know, destroy those people in the Valley of Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon, Valley of Megiddo, and he's going to take over. That's two different things. But listen, I want to be ready if it's in my lifetime. I want to be ready when the bridegroom comes to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't want to be in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So, the priestly garments maybe are not as conditional as what we think. For us to get into the marriage supper, they seem to be mandatory, don't they? Here's what I want to do. There's a scripture in Leviticus. I want us to pray this. I want you to go back to your notes. Those that are watching online, it's a, you know in your notes where it talked about the, the false witness or the, the rash vows and unforgiveness and all that stuff. I want you to circle that. And here in a moment, I want you to take some time to pray about that. That's all we're going to do. Okay, We're going to pray about that. And I want to read you this scripture. Listen to this. When people, when the children of Israel backslid away from God, listen to what God said in Leviticus. Let me find, it's uh, 26, verse 40. Listen to what it says. If they will confess their iniquity and the iniquities of their fathers. What does that say? Confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Okay. With their treachery, which they acted treacherously against me and have walked contrary to me. And, and because of that, God says, because of that, I've also walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. But if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they then accept their punishment of their iniquity if they confess their sin and the sin of their fathers listen to what it says I will remember my covenant with Jacob my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land that's how it works listen if you every great move of God that ever happened in Israel's history they confess their sin and the sins of their fathers. And some of you maybe have never done that. I want you to take a moment to pray about the things on that list. We're going to do an altar time where you pray. And then I'm going to pray for whoever wants prayer, okay? I want you to pray about that. Have you made rash vows? Is there things in your life that fall under the category of, of maybe not being the witness you need to be and to all the other things that's in that list with unforgiveness and all that? Does any of that apply to you? Also, have you really taken the time to confess the sins of your ancestors and get that under the blood so that none of that junk is going to come down the line anymore? Amen? I want us to have an altar time where, yes, we're saved, but we're going to be sanctified. We're going to visit the laver, and we're going to get washed with the water of the Word of God as we look at the Word, and we see where we have fallen short, and we get cleansed of it. Amen?